0: Welcome to White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini-pod. Delivered in short doses, this mini-podcast features informal, on-topic discussions with in-house experts, outside counsel, and other thought leaders on a wide array of cutting-edge and practical white-collar and compliance topics. Visit perkinscoie.com for more information on our nationally ranked white-collar and investigations practice. On this episode of White Collar Briefly, Perkins partner Kevin Feldis, a former federal prosecutor, talks with retired Special Agent Colton Seal about recent research on conducting effective witness interviews. Seal, who previously served as a member of the FBI's high-value detainee interrogation group, provides a first-hand account of how to add science into the art of interviewing, including how to build rapport with an interviewee in a way that opens the door for meaningful and accurate fact-finding. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Perkins Coie LLP and should not be considered legal advice.
1: Welcome to another episode of White Collar Briefly. Uh, my name is Kevin Feldis and I'm your host today. I'm a partner at Perkins Coie and I focus on white collar matters, government investigations and litigation. And before joining Perkins, I worked as a federal prosecutor with the Department of Justice for 18 years. Today, we're very fortunate to have special guest Colton Seal. Colton is a retired a special agent with the FBI, and I've worked with Colton uh, over the years. During Colton's 22 years with the FBI, he worked around the country and around the world investigating all types of crimes, white collar crimes, violent crimes to include international terrorism, and we'll, we'll touch on that today. During his many years, he was assigned to the Bureau's High Value Interrogation Group, or as they call it, the HIG. He helped develop interview and interrogation techniques for the FBI that brought science into the art of interviewing, and he trained thousands of other people in how to apply these techniques. So today's episode is called Building Rapport, Getting in Sync related to interviewing, both in high-stakes situations like terrorists or in the more mundane situation and even applying that to the corporate setting. So we're very happy to have Colton uh, here today, and uh, Colton, thanks for joining me.
2: Yeah, it's awesome to be here, I really appreciate it and look forward to it, thanks.
1: Well great, today we're going to talk about conducting interviews, specifically how to build rapport and what the research has been telling us or telling you about new and better approaches, and even how the FBI has been making changes in how it gathers information from people, including terrorists. So let's use that as the launching off point, Colton, and tell me a little bit about your background with the FBI.
2: Okay, like you said, I was in the Bureau for 22 years, retired this June, enjoying retirement right now for a moment. I started my career in the Alaska Field Division, the Anchorage office, which is where we worked together and got to know you. And we worked several cases together, actually. So hopefully we can chat about those. I spent almost 10 years up there. And after that, I went to the FBI's Counterterrorism Division fly team, which was basically an overseas team working on counterterrorism things. So I spent two years in Pakistan and a lot more time in North Africa and different places working terrorism matters, mostly doing interviews. And that's what I found I really loved in Anchorage, you know, smallest field division, ton of work. We got to interview people every day, you know, five, six times a day. And then I got to do it overseas and found I really loved it. And after that, as you mentioned, I was asked to join the HIG, spent six years there as an interview team leader, but also my primary job there was pulling together all the research that the HIG had done to put it in a useful format for for doing interviews or interrogations.
1: Well, tell me about the HIG because that's something that you and I are familiar with, but maybe not everybody out there. So could you tell us for a few minutes what the HIG does?
2: Yeah, so kind of the background on the HIG. If you think back to the presidential election in 2008, there's a lot of debate on the interrogation tactics we were using overseas primarily, but and whether those were effective and whether that was what we wanted to be doing. So when President Obama came in in 2009, he created a task force on interrogation to look at kind of the state of what we knew about it at the time. And one of the cool, interesting things that they found was that no research had been done on interrogation since about the Korean War, right? So we were just doing it based on what the guy before us did or somebody's good idea about interviewing, but there was no research on it. So the recommendation was to form the HIG which is an interagency group. It's FBI, CIA, and DOD. And to be the lead in high-value interviews, but also to lead that research. So the HIG, over the last 10 years now, has conducted a lot of research on things like what we're going to talk about today, what is rapport, and found some really cool results.
1: Like from our prior discussions, Colton, that some of these results were unexpected. So even the FBI was surprised, I take it, about what you learned regarding rapport, doing interviews, and maybe that some of the things that have been done for years might not be the best way of doing business. Yeah, definitely.
2: It's it's funny, right? The goal of an interview should be to gather information, right? And accurate information. And one of the initial things that we found, which was just interesting, kind of a side note, but was that most people going into an interview especially in the law enforcement field, we're trying to get, their focus was getting a confession, right? Or we want somebody to admit somebody. It wasn't focused on gathering information. And just switching that focus makes such a difference in rapport and outcomes, right? What you get. But in terms of what was really unexpected, and I know you've experienced this as your time as a prosecutor and you've worked overseas as well, right? So I know you've experienced that. We often don't get complete accurate information from people. We don't get the full story, right? And question is why? And I think the main reason is, it's just been, a we haven't understood what rapport is. And so we haven't really been developing rapport with the people we're talking to. So, you know, we were taught that rapport is, well, the thing that drives me nuts is that we were taught that rapport is a phase of the interview, right? You go in and you spend 10 minutes doing the rapport thing And then you get on with the interview, right? It's not that.
1: Yeah. So we've heard, we've, we've all heard that phrase, right? Well, let's build some rapport here first. Right. And then move on. Exactly. Right. But that's not, that's, I guess what you're saying. Well, let me, let me go back to something you said a minute ago. So from my perspective, and I've done hundreds of interviews, both now in private practice, uh, examining witnesses, presenting people to the grand jury and participating in an investigations. And like you said, we've worked cases together. So, you know, the goals, of course, would, would be to obtain complete and accurate information, right, about the subject being investigated, truthful answers to relevant questions. Right. But it sounds like the fact that we ask a question and get an answer, uh, that's not enough. We've, gotta, we've got to think about things like rapport um, before we even get in the room.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, part of your planning needs to be considering rapport. Who is this person I'm talking to? And how with them, can I develop rapport, right? It's not something if you do the same thing every time, it's not going to work, you need to think about who that person is. So it is part of your planning. And it's something that lasts the entire interview, right? And it's not just being nice that kind of stuff.
1: So it sounds like one thing right away is it's not just a phase. It's not just something you do up front and move on. But maybe do you have a definition of what is rapport then based upon the research and work that you've done?
2: Yeah. Uh, So it's funny. At the beginning of every class I teach, I always ask, you know, what is rapport? And you get basically blank stares from a lot of people. You know, they know they're supposed to do it. They've been told that. But if you actually directly ask, what is it? I don't know right? So we've done a lot of research. And what it comes down to really is, it's getting in sync with people in terms of their motivations, and and several other things that we can talk about, but it's really getting in sync with them, right, and allowing them to get in sync with us. And before we carry on, I wonder if quickly, I just want to recognize that this isn't my cool idea about interviewing this comes from A lot of great researchers and just want to call out a few of them. Lawrence and Emily Allison at the University of Liverpool have done brilliant work on this and recently published a book on their aspect of the research. And Paul Taylor, who's the director for the Center for Research on Security Threats in the UK, kind of the UK counterpart of the HIG, also has done brilliant work. So there's a lot of researchers, but those two are awesome, or three. So I just wanted to call them out.
1: Yeah, great. So so we've got the research that's being done by, by experts, and then we've got applying that research to the real world because I think a lot of us you know, who've been doing this a long time would say, well, okay, but does that work in practice? And, and you've put it in practice, as you said, around the world. So what is it about rapport and getting in sync? I mean, can you break that down for us? Is there a, is there a formula? Uh, is this an art or is this a science? What what are the different things that go into getting in sync with somebody?
2: That's actually funny. The term that we came up with, at the HIG, at some point, don't really remember where it came from, but it's science artfully applied. So it is a science and an art, right? And I think it's important to recognize that both of those are parts of it. But relative to the science and getting in sync with somebody, that happens at three different levels, right? So the first is kind of the cognitive level. It's bringing their internal thought processes and emotions to a point where they're willing to talk to you. The second is dealing with their behavior and getting their behavior to kind of an adaptive, productive place where they're giving us accurate information. And then finally, we need to deal with the topic itself and get aligned with that. So we're talking about the same thing in the same way
1: does it does it work i mean do you find that you can tell that using the new research and new application can you tell it makes a difference
2: yeah so from the research point it works right looking at real interviews and interrogations and watching people use the things we're talking about they get more information right so from the research side it works from the practitioner side it definitely works i mean you just feel a difference in that interview and you're more present in the interview with the person and getting more information from them and more productive.
1: And and you've used this yourself. I mean, when you're talking to a suspected terrorist, these techniques you feel will get you better and more complete answers.
2: Definitely. Yeah. So just a quick example, a while ago, I was interviewing a guy who's a computer hacker who'd done some stuff on behalf of ISIS. he was just a difficult guy to talk to first he talked really fast he never would stay on topic he was always competitive and would change the topic every five minutes or not even that every minute basically difficult guy to talk to and he really didn't want to be forthcoming on what we were talking about so i had a team of observers watching it and when we'd go out they'd kind of coach me in terms of these models right here's where you're out of sync on the model and I'd go back in and change the way I was talking to him and change the way I was listening and approaching him based on the research and ended up talking to the guy for seven days and getting pretty much everything we needed. Wow! So it completely changed what would have been a completely fruitless conversation because of this research got us where we needed to be.
1: Wow, That that that's a, a great uh, example. Let's go back through those three levels or three parts that you outlined for us about how to get in sync with somebody, uh, how to build rapport and get in sync. So I think what was the, the first thing you said was focusing on the internal thought process and emotions of the person that you're interviewing.
2: Right, and what that really means is, it's just getting them to a place where they're willing and want to talk to us, right? And there's, I'll talk about some the specific things that we do there, but kind of set the stage right? We can't convince or force anybody to talk to us if they don't want to, right? They need to make that decision themselves. And we can do some things. So it's not things that we're doing really, it's an approach to interviewing. And if we approach an interview like this, it helps them make that decision on their own. So I'll just quickly run through, I guess, what those things are, if that works.
1: Yeah, yeah. So the idea being... We want to get an understand of what the person we're interviewing is thinking, what motivates them, and, and yeah, you said there's certain, there's certain aspects of that.
2: Yeah, so it's not only our trying to understand what motivates them, but it's they, them feeling like we're making that effort and that they're being heard, if that makes sense. So it's just a few things that we need to change. One is allowing them autonomy, right? A feeling of choice in an interview. The second is acceptance, which is most importantly, it's being non-judgmental, but it's also seeing them as a full human being or as a full person. Then there's adaptation, which is just going where they go with the interview and not being rigid. And then empathy and evocation are the last two. And that's really trying to see it from whatever the issue is from their perspective and then drawing out their beliefs and values and letting those be heard. And if that's part of the interview, research shows you get more information.
1: Are these genuine? Are you suggesting these are tools that are used or are you suggesting, because this is what it sounds like to me and and here's, you know, again, the benefits of my perspective would be that, that you really need to be invested in those five things that you've laid out there. This isn't for show. This is just really how you're going to approach the discussion.
2: Yeah, that's actually really well said because it is, it's we're term we use it's it's an ethos it's how you just approach interviewing somebody right so they're not tricks or tools or whatever it's just using these five things as who you naturally are you use the word genuine and that's really important because when people first encounter somebody else we judge them basically on three things so Warmth, which is what are my intentions towards somebody and competence, which is my ability to carry out those intentions. Um, We want to be high warmth, high competence. But the third thing is genuineness. People are really good at judging genuineness. So this can't be just a trick that you use. It needs to be how you approach an interview.
1: Yeah, that, that's interesting because I, I bet if we were to, you know, just ask people, and maybe this is partly of because what we watch on TV, but they would say, well, when you approach an interview, you when you're an FBI agent, you must approach an interview with this strategy and you're either going to, you know, overpower someone into telling you what you want to know, or you're going to maybe, uh, you know, outsmart them somehow into telling you or confessing or giving you information is this sounds very different
2: yeah it's it definitely it's tough for some people to kind of get accustomed to doing it differently because it is different and it's different than what we've been taught and the way we see it on tv but if you think about it right if somebody starts feeling like they're being tricked in an interview like i'm trying to back them into a corner what's their natural response going to be protect themselves, you're going
1: to be thinking ahead, right? Yeah,
2: they're trying to think ahead, they're trying to protect themselves. How do I get out of this? If we do this stuff, we're not giving them something to push back against, right? And it brings them to that point where they're like, "Yeah, maybe I am willing to talk to this person about whatever this thing is. So think about it, right? If you say you're doing an internal investigation, and you bring somebody into your office to talk to them. And you say, right, sit down over there, sit in that chair. And I'm gonna ask you these questions, right? So no autonomy, you gotta sit there. And I'm going to ask you these questions, you're gonna answer them, and you're being rigid, right? Not adaptive. It creates reactance, right? It gives them something to push against.
1: So uh, it, it's, you know, the, the model that we've seen in the past, and let me know what your thoughts of this from the FBI perspective, but I've, I've certainly seen it is someone walks into a room, and they're well-intentioned, they're a nice person, and they've got a list of questions that they have created and and they think they're great questions because the questions are based on the information that they need. But that can lead to the kind of rigidity that you're talking about. Is 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 that similar from the law enforcement perspective?
2: Yeah, definitely. And I, I mean, I've experienced that, as I'm sure you have. You go in to do an interview and, Somebody's given you a list of questions or you've come up with them that they want answered. Right. But the issue there is, right, we want the intelligence, but if we're talking to someone who has some reluctance or some reason, they don't want to provide us any, all the information, which is pretty much everybody we talk to, everybody has something they want to protect. Right. And when we take away that feeling of I'm seeing you as a person and I care and want to understand your perspective and your beliefs and values that underlie whatever this thing is we're here talking about, right? If you take that away, they lose that reason to want to talk more, right? You add that in and don't create reactants. Now they have more of a reason to want to talk to you.
1: So part of it is taking the time to understand their motivations, give some flexibility to how the conversation proceeds. And I guess you like you talked about this autonomy, giving a person a choice of how, where they're going to start because, uh, and I, I've seen this, somebody wants to start in a certain spot. Maybe they want to jump right in and get to the, to the ultimate question, or maybe they want to start with understanding the relationship between two people in a workplace, and they, they see that as most important. But maybe we're missing in that the autonomy of... person you're interviewing and they really want to talk about something completely different or they want to start somewhere else
2: right and i'll actually hopefully get to that in a little more depth at some point during this but exactly right if they want to talk about something else that's what's on the forefront of their mind right and that's where they want to be we need to go there with them on that right allow them the autonomy to choose that we adapt and go with them because if we don't that thing is still in their mind right and it's blocking the information that we want. It's cognitive load, basically. Their cognitive load goes up. That makes it more difficult to access the information that we're after. So deal with that first right? and go where they want to go.
1: A little bit earlier in our conversation, you told us about the three things, the internal thought process and the emotions. And you've just kind of summarized that. Number two was you said their behavior or the behavior of the person you're interviewing. What, what do you mean by that? And how does that fit into this building rapport and getting a more successful interview?
2: It ties into the getting in sync with them. We have to basically, our behavior needs to be in the appropriate place in relation to their behavior. So backing up a little bit right? We often see behavior as something that's kind of, people are just the way they are, right? I behave this way because it's just who I am, right? And that's not really accurate. Behavior happens in relation to something else, right? It doesn't happen in a vacuum. So my behavior influences the interviewee. The interviewee's behavior can also influence mine, right? So it's keeping that in mind. And then we kind of figure out what behavior are they showing? And there are very specific things that we need to do to change our behavior, to balance that basically, to move the interview forward, if that makes sense so far.
1: Yeah. So power and competition. And I imagine not everybody's interview style is the same. Is that okay? Can can everybody apply these principles or do you have to have a certain personality or a, a certain way of approaching things?
2: Based on my experience, most people can do this and it is taking the science and putting it into a way that works for you, right? So you mentioned the kind of two axes that relate to behavior. One is the power axis and one is a competition axis. And so if I have to be high power in an interview, high power for me is gonna look a lot different than it will for another FBI agent. So I've got a friend who's like, Six foot something, big, loud guy, right? I'm not that high power is going to look different for us. So you adapt it to your personality and your style. Does that make sense?
1: Yep. No, that makes that makes total sense. So, so this isn't a rigid application of these principles. It's one that everybody probably has to adapt to to their own personality, their own characteristics. It sounds like uh, even their physical size. Yeah,
2: in a sense. Yeah. It's just, you have to recognize who you are, right? Knowing yourself, knowing how to, how am I perceived by other people? How am I perceived when I act different ways? And how am I reacting to what they're doing, right? So it comes down to knowing yourself and being good at that, self-aware constantly.
1: Now we've all heard of the, uh, the good cop, bad cop routine, um, right? And I think that's sort of in people's minds of, well, these, these ideas you're talking about may be great, Colton, but isn't it isn't it, you know, we want one person to be the bad guy and then you come in as the good guy and someone will want to talk to you. Does, does any of that thinking fit into the science and research that you've been doing? Yeah, no,
2: the re- research pretty much discounts the whole good cop, bad cop idea. Uh, and I think most people who've tried it also realize ah, that just, that didn't work. I'll just, as kind of a side note, the only time it did work in my career was it wasn't intentional. The guy who was partnered with me in an interview was just bad cop. And so it was genuine. <laughs> and so, <laughs> it just, who yeah, was. was. And so it kind of worked there because, but I'll say the one time it did. But in general, it's not a good strategy. It's not a thing. It just, it doesn't work.
1: So let's talk about that power and competition you, you mentioned. Um, the the two axes of of power and competition. Tell me a little bit more about that or do you have any examples of of how that played into some interviews that you've conducted?
2: Yeah, so two axes, think about one power as kind of a north-south axis, right? And so the top is high power, the bottom, low power. And we need to adapt to where whoever we're talking to wants to be on that spectrum. So if you and I both wanna be high power, where's that interview gonna go? We're just gonna be button heads.
1: And is that something, I mean, I guess, do people come into interviews uh, intending to be high power or low power, or is that just something that that occurs and you have to react
2: to? Sometimes you can predict where somebody's gonna be based on what you know about them and who they are. Say, for example, if I'm interviewing a scientist who knows a lot about whatever it is we're talking about, right? and I go in, where are they gonna to wanna to be? They're gonna to wanna to be in charge because they know about this stuff right? So their power is going to be high. So what do I need to do? I need to lower my power and listen and let them be there for a while, right? It's not giving up control of the interview. It's we're still in control of the interview, big picture. We're just reacting to where they are and changing our behavior to let them be where they need to be. And if their behavior is a negative high power, right? They're just demanding and rigid, right? If I lower my power and listen, that actually moves them to a, positive place of high power, which is now just being in charge, essentially, but I'm not giving up control of the interview, I can change my behavior later and start to move it.
1: Any specific examples that you're allowed to share with us on that?
2: Yeah. So on the other axis, I'll give an example on this one. It's the competition axis, and it operates a little bit differently. If they're being competitive, they want competition. And so we actually need to essentially give them competition. Right, so we, but we have to do that in a positive way. Um, So the, I'll go back to the computer hacker guy. Like I mentioned, he was super competitive constantly, and he would challenge everything I said. Well, do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know this? Like, so I'd have to kind of push back with competition as well. But specific example, he was, he'd been in contact with the head of the ISIS hacking brigade basically, and we knew that, and. So I'm asking him about that guy. And he says, his response is, well, I was in contact with a lot of people, I talked to everybody, I basically know everyone. So that's not important. And he started to go off on something else, right? He's just being competitive. So I had to compete back. So my response was something along the lines of, you're right, You, you were in contact with a lot of people, you do know a lot of people. I appreciate that. However, a lot of people aren't the cyber emir for isis right this guy is let's talk about him and it kind of stopped him and he's like okay yeah you're right and but it was being competitive back and then we had a good conversation about that guy so
1: just by the way you reacted to his statement you feel like you got much better results yeah
2: definitely and internally right i was just like i'm sick of this guy being competitive all the time and i wanted to just kind of argue with him and go after him internally but right the know yourself okay i recognize that this is the response i want to give but i do instead i need to be competitive but in a positive direct kind of frank and forth right way with him and it my opinion and the research definitely shows it but my opinion that that actually changed the tenor of the conversation and it kind of stopped him and he moved over to a he was still competitive, but in a positive way, and we had a good conversation.
1: So it's interesting that you said that about you know maybe talking to someone who's got uh, specific expertise, or in your case of your ISIS hacker who who sees themselves as being perhaps much smarter than anyone else on this particular subject, and and I've certainly seen that work in interviews uh, that I've been involved with where. If someone wants to be the expert, then you let them be the expert, and you don't need to prove that you're you're smarter than them or that you know more about a topic. So that sounds like it's an example of how these power and competition issues by seeding control, you, you're actually getting more information that you're looking for.
2: Yep, and at some point, right? I might like say I'm interviewing the scientist. I think we interviewed that guy together, who was an engineer that had worked on boat engines. He knew everything in the world about right so letting him talk Mm -hmm. was important but at some point also i need to direct the course of this interview right so if i've gone low power i can actually start raising my power as the interview goes on to kind of take charge in the course of the interview the natural response is once i've let somebody be where they want to be i start raising my power they'll start lowering theirs and kind of meet me in the middle and then we can flip-flop as needed throughout the interview so it's not giving up
1: so it sounds like that's not giving up, it sounds like that's what you're saying in getting in sync. So you're allowing uh, both parties to kind of get in sync where you're not pushing it, but once you've developed a little of this rapport, you can have more influence about where the conversation goes.
2: Yep, yeah, and it's still being in sync and it's still rapport, right? I'm just, if they pop their power back up, I'll drop mine back down and then I'll gradually raise mine again and maybe they'll lower theirs at some point, I'll raise mine. And so it's just keeping that balance right as the interview progresses.
1: Right, and you mentioned that case we worked together where we were uh, interviewing, I think it was an engineer trying to figure out why uh, why a big engine failed and led to a, you know a ship going on the rocks and, and an oil spill and, and all kinds of things and people dying. Right. And so as I recall, the danger there was then the expert just wants to tell you what, what they wanna tell you. And y- you can just, you could lose control, right? You could just let them go on for, for hours and you might not actually get around to what are some of the more challenging questions of, well, why did that engine fail? And could it could someone have been responsible for that failure? Right. And
2: so that that is why you have to recognize you're not just being weak and submissive, you're being thoughtful and listening when your power's low. And then from there, you can raise it up to move it. And that is the danger of, you know, also with adaptation, just letting someone go down a road that you never get where you want to be. So part of rapport is actually productively moving the conversation. And that can be, in the case of the engineer, summarizing, okay, you told me this, this, and this, interesting. Now help me understand this thing that I need to know and moving it forward like that.
1: Right. So you're not giving up on the goals of what you need to ask and those hard questions. You're just approaching it in a way that, allow, I guess, allows that person to feel more comfortable in providing those answers. Exactly, Yes. So we've talked about getting in sync by understanding the internal thought process and emotions of who you're talking to, by looking at the behavior of the person you're talking to, what are they bringing to the table and how are you adapting to their level of power coming in or whether they're approaching this competitively or not. And then you had mentioned that there was a third element to getting in sync, which was understanding, I think you said understanding the motivations of the person you're speaking to regarding the specific topic
2: yeah it's part of it is re- understanding kind of their motivational frame how they're coming at this but the goal of it is to really sync get in sync on the topic that we're talking about the topic we want to be talking about and we're talking about it in the same way so that we're moving forward productively so it's a, kind of a complex three-dimensional model so I'll try to break it down um first thing that we have to think about is just what is their overall orientation toward this topic? And everybody comes at a topic in one of three basic ways. So it's either cooperative, I want to talk to you about it, right? Or it's competitive, I'll talk to you about it, but I'm going to compete with you, right? So say you and I had different views of interviewing and rapport, right? Rather than being a cooperative conversation right now, it could be a competitive one. Or the third thing is just avoidant. I don't want to talk about this thing. right? So we need to figure out where they are on that spectrum and get there. right? So if they're avoidant, right, they don't want to talk about it. As you'd mentioned earlier, sometimes we need to talk about something else first. right? So I would go to whatever they're talking about. I'm not going to push my agenda. I'm going to sync up with them on what they're talking about and then move it from there.
1: Yeah. And, and that makes sense. So it gets back to what you were, you know, we were talking about earlier is if someone doesn't want to tell you something, they're going to work really hard to avoid doing that. And you may be frustrated and you may feel that they're not telling you the truth, but but they're they're in control of what they know.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So going back to the, the three A's, two E's that I talked about, autonomy, adaptation, acceptance, empathy, and evocation, right? Those help with all of that, but we have to do more. And this is getting in sync with how they're approaching this thing. And it's it actually give us some gives us a model on how to do this, right? So if they're being avoidant, right, we go there and talk to that, but then we can become a little bit competitive and push them on it. And then we move up to cooperative and we pull them up with us.
1: Now what about you know I can't help thinking as we're talking here and, and you know this is something you and I both know, but it but it seems relevant To ask about what about what we've heard of we're just going to interrogate someone uh, and keep asking the same question over and over or we're going to break them down or we're going to wear them down until they you know hey you're not going anywhere until you answer us right and now in the in the corporate setting we don't have that option of course but in the investigating of terrorism cases i suppose you can keep that person locked up until they talk right Uh does that work does that is that also a method that gets results
2: generally no So in any criminal type case right so if you essentially threaten somebody right you're not going anywhere until we get the information we want what are they going to give you at some point what they think is the information you want right but now you have no way to actually know that that's credible information and very often it's not credible information they're just giving us an answer to our question that they've kind of reading between the lines of what we're asking, they'll give us an answer, right? So if you look at the whole issue of false confessions, which is an actual thing that happens, why does that happen? Because people ultimately are just like, I've got to tell them something to make this end, right? And there's a whole lot of other factors that play into it, but you end up with a false confession or just intelligence that you can't believe.
1: Well, you and I have talked about this topic prior to our conversation on this podcast. And I'm a firm believer in all the concepts that that you've been talking about here. And I know there's there's a lot more we could say to get this information out there in the world. And like I said earlier, I think this applies uh, equally to internal investigations that companies are doing when, you know, they're trying to figure out if someone committed fraud or if something went wrong in their organization. or, as you said, interviewing, a criminal or even a terrorist. So we we've only got a couple of minutes left for today, but I want to do two things. One, if you have any other examples, maybe you know how you've seen this work out over your career and how things are are different now than when when you started. And then secondly, maybe we could queue up a few issues for further conversations, you know, where 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 does this take us? What are the next phases and things that we could talk about in terms of conducting a solid interview where we get complete accurate information.
2: That's a, that's a big question. Um, so, I guess how I've seen things change is, especially the last six, seven years of working with the research, is just really changing the way we think about interviews and moving away from the I'm in charge and I'm going to break this person and I'm going to get information from them and that, and rather focusing on them and letting them make that decision to talk to us basically, which gets us more and better information. But that's a tough thing. Like I said, sometimes you have to be low power. Sometimes you have to, if somebody's being avoidant and wants to talk about themselves rather than what we want to talk about, right? We need to go there and do that and move them and not just stick with our rigid list of questions. And I think that's...
1: You remember that? You, that, that made me think, do you, do you remember that bank robbery suspect or bank robber? Uh that we worked years ago how how did that come around where she didn't she didn't want to admit to what she had done but but we were looking for a confession right
2: yeah so we after a series of bank robberies that she actually did a a fairly professional job on we identified her and went and arrested her and brought her in to talk to her i know at some point you and i talked to her together but we're trying to get a confession to a bank robbery and asking would be very instrumental questions, right? Facts, figures, you know, that how did you learn how to do this? What did you do admit you robbed the bank, right? And we're getting nowhere, because she was being avoidant and identity talking about herself, right. And so finally, I think, right, I had no idea what I was doing at the time, but something clicked in my brain. And I said, "All right, shut up and listen to her story. And so she told us about I think her loser boyfriend had stolen all of the rent money. And she had a kid and they were getting evicted. And there was just all this stuff going on in her life. And she was miserable and kind of, she was really smart, but she was just at the end of her rope, right? And once we listened to that story and then started kind of moving it back up to talking about the bank robberies, she had no problem talking about them at that point, but because we got in sync, right? Now we're talking about her Right, not just facts and figures, and in the way that she wanted to talk about it, and then we were able to move forward with her. And she, my memory is, she told us pretty much everything at that point.
1: No, that's right. It was it went from you know I'm not going to confess to this bank robbery. You want a confession? I'm not going to give you what you want, and why should I? To telling you about the motivations of where she got to the point in her life where she was committing these bank robberies, and and through that approach of of being able right to tell about her her difficult experiences and and frankly um, it, it made it a much more compassionate story that i think you know was good, was good to hear important to hear it wasn't just a bank robbery it was a story of someone's life and how they got to to committing bank
2: robbery right and like i said she told us pretty much everything i remember she even told us where she'd dumped the disguises that she'd worn
1: Yeah. Something you wouldn't have known ever found otherwise. So, well, I cut you off there and partly because I know we are actually winding down, but this has been a great conversation. Is there, are there some segues or other topics? Because I know that you've done, you know, you've worked on the research and you've, you've focused on a lot of other interviews and now you're doing it, of course, through your own consulting um, work that you're doing after just leaving the FBI. But are there some other topics we can queue up that uh, might be good for further conversations?
2: Like I said, at the beginning, you know, there had been no research done and over the last now almost 10 years, um, we've pulled together from hundreds of researchers, great research that covers like the entire spectrum of an interview from the planning to kind of how you manage their impression of you and um, how you structure questioning, a lot of different things. But my personal favorite is um, deception detection which the research on that has just been exploding over the last few years. And few great researchers in that field who have completely turned upside down everything we thought we knew about deception detection. And basically everything we've been taught is incorrect, but there is a way to do it, but it's just focusing on what people say and how they say it and really listening to people. And it's a fascinating
1: topic. All right. I like it. Well, I, I, it sounds like that's something we should ch- chat about more in the future. And um, I really appreciate you taking the time today to talk to us about building rapport and, and all the elements that go into that. So Colton, thank you for being here. Let's chat more again about this topic and others and congratulations on your retirement. And uh, I know you're doing great work now uh, helping in the private sector. Cool,
2: thank you very much. I've enjoyed it.
0: Closes this episode of White Collar Briefly. Please visit whitecollarbriefly.com where you can subscribe to our blog and find additional updates on current white collar and compliance topics. White Collar Briefly of Perkins Cooey Minipod, copyright 2020 by Perkins Cooey LLP. Thank you for listening.